This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air, the radio show. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Avery Broderick speaks about the mysteries of black holes. Now let's join Moses as he welcomes Avery to the stage. And there is nothing further out to space in this discussion than what our next speaker, Avery Broderick, managed to do, which is to see the unseeable, to see a black hole that is some, do I have this right, 55 million light years away from Earth in a massive galaxy when what we've been taught all these years is that A black hole is the acme of nothing. It's where everything disappears. It's uh, what those uh, early sailors must have meant when they said, you know, beware of dragons, all ye enter here. And yet, Mr. Broderick and his team were able to get this epic picture. Avery, please come out. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Like so many moments in science, this was really the culmination of the efforts of a very large number of people. And I stand before you humbly as a representative of the more than 200 members of the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration who made this uh, picture possible. We have two amazing pillars of modern physics, quantum mechanics and Einstein's theory of gravity, both of which have been exquisitely tested and passed at every instance. And yet we know there must be something more. Black holes are the nexus of many of the questions, many of the threads that attempt to unify these two theories, and therefore are a natural opportunity to seek solutions. We know now that black holes are not physical oddities, but they're actually movers and shakers within the galaxies they inhabit. They shape the universe around them. So if you wanted to understand why the night sky looks the way it does, you also need to understand the dramas that unfold in the vicinity of black holes. The difficulty is that black holes are very small, small in a physical sense. If I were to imagine trying to create a black hole from the sun, I could do so by compressing it sufficiently. And if I did that, it wouldn't have to be the size of the Earth, it wouldn't have to be the size of the greater Toronto area, it would have to be the size of a large town, a diameter of six kilometers. If I wanted to compress the Earth to make a black hole, I could do that too. Then it would have to be the size of a large marble. Black holes are small. Compared to the astronomical distances to them, 
They're practically invisible. So if we look at the nearest black hole that we know of, this is located in X-ray binary, 3,500 3, light years away from us. It has a phone number name that I don't recall. It's seven times the mass of the sun, and it subtends an angular scale of one ten, uh, ten trillionth of a degree. That's tiny by any measure. Fortunately for us, there's another kind of black hole, the supermassive monsters that live at the centers of galaxies, including our own. For decades, scientists have been watching stars orbiting a dark point at the center of our galaxy, and from that deduce that there has to be a four million solar mass behemoth there. And that would subtend an angle of a hundred millionth of a degree. And you'll note that the order in which I've told them to you makes that sound like a whoppingly large figure. Of course, it is still extremely difficult. If you were to try to observe black holes with an optical telescope that was 30 meters in diameter, this is the cutting edge, this is the largest telescopes being built today on the drawing board today, you're still at a resolution that's a hundred times too low. You can't do this in the optical. Now, it might seem like folly to imagine doing this at longer wavelengths, in the radio, at millimeter wavelengths, comparable to the electromagnetic radiation in your microwave. If you did that, you would need a telescope the size of the Earth. Okay, so building a mirror the size of the Earth is expensive. <laughs> There are some political problems. Okay, but we can do that. Any telescope operates by bringing the light into focus in a, in a complicated optical dance, well choreographed so it all arrives at exactly the same time. We can use a technique called very long baseline interferometry where we replace this entire mirror with just slivers. And each, each of those slivers, we record the light, record the full electromagnetic wave. And then on large computers, we complete the optical choreography, bring it into focus and generate an image. In some sense, this is a synthetic telescope where we've combined the input from many telescopes around the globe. This is what the Event Horizon Telescope is. It's a telescope the size of the Earth, built with computers and stations spread around the globe. There are challenges. We have the highest data recording rates in science. I suspect the highest data recording rates outside of government institutions. We record at each telescope a full HD movie every second. We have literally tons of data. It's, there are tons of hard drives produced in each observation. It's also high-precision science. In order to complete that optical choreography, we need to time tag all of our measurements with atomic clock precision. So for more than a decade, we have been hard at work demonstrating that we can actually do all that stuff I just said. Demonstrating it worked, and demonstrating there was something to see. But at the beginning of 2017, something very special happened. It became clear that we had enough stations in the array, not just to prove that we could actually make it work in principle, but generate a real image. And thus, on April 5th, 2017, all of the stations of the EHT turned in unison towards Messier 87, a galaxy in the constellation of Virgo, and observed at the same time. And I'm going to take us on a journey into the heart of M87. I'm going to start with the night sky, and at every step, we're going to be able to tell where we were before to give an idea of the scale. So here we are from southern Ontario. 
and we're going to zoom in on Virgo. And as we zoom in on Virgo, we start to see Virgo has a cluster of galaxies, not a single galaxy. There are 2,000 galaxies in the Virgo supercluster, all orbiting each other's gravity. And at the heart of the Virgo cluster, there's one particularly large galaxy, M87. It's not a galaxy like ours. It's 100 times larger than the Milky Way. And it's not disk-like or spiral. It's sort of a cosmic egg. And at the center of M87, you can start to see one of these prominences, one of these jets that rule the fates of their galaxies and their friends. M87 harbors such a source. Now, at this point, our journey in the optical has ended. There are no higher resolution optical images. To move forward, we have to put on our radio eyes once again. This is an image coming from a telescope called the Very Large Array. It's very much like the Event Horizon Telescope, but it's located in Socorro, New Mexico, in a 100-kilometer region. So it's very much smaller, smaller resolution, lower resolution. And as we zoom in step by step, we now come to telescopes that have to be the size of the Earth. This is a telescope that's in spirit very similar to the Event Horizon Telescope, but operates at longer wavelengths and therefore lower resolution. And here we go, we stop here for a moment. We have now zoomed in by a factor of 70 million. It didn't feel that like, like that much, did it? It's the wonders of exponential growth. On April 9th, 2019, this was the highest resolution image ever published of M87. You can see that the jet extends off to your right. That's consequence of the black hole at the center, but not the black hole. On April 9th, this is the picture, or April 10th, this is the picture we showed. It's not a incremental advance in resolution, it was a quantum leap in resolution. And for the first time, we're able to see the impact of the black hole horizon on the emission not just see its effect on material around it. Coming up after the break. Material has plunged an enormous distance deep into the gravitational potential well, liberated enormous amounts of energy, moving at near light speed in the vicinity of the black hole. Welcome back to Idea City on the air. You're listening to Avery Broderick speak about the mysteries of black holes. Now, during all of this time, theorists were not idle. I'm a theorist, and I spent much of my career making predictions for what images like this might look like and how we might study Einstein's theory of gravity and how black holes interact with other things to make these outflows. There are two primary effects that shape that image. The first is gravity. Light falls in gravitational fields. Photons are deflected around the black hole. But here, not by one two thousandth of a degree, here by tens of degrees, hundreds of degrees, sometimes making complete orbits. The net result of all of this deflection is the creation of a silhouette, a shadow. A region in the image produced by surrounding emission that is dark because the light rays that would have filled in that shadow would have had to have begun below the event horizon of the black hole. The second piece of physics that controls what that image looks like are the properties of the emitting region, and primarily its dynamics. The reason why black holes form the industry of the cosmos 
is that they uh, are very, very compact, and as a result, material has plunged an enormous distance deep into the gravitational potential well, liberated enormous amounts of energy, moving at near light speed in the vicinity of the black hole, crashing into itself, heating to, in this case, more than 100 billion degrees and shining. This is ordered only by the angular momentum of the infalling material, which causes it to organize itself into a disk, and also collects magnetic fields, which twist and organize themselves into these helical columns above and below. Those columns are exactly the footprints of the jets that are so important in the evolution of their parent galaxies. The key piece of physics from this is that material that is coming towards you is bright. Emission from material that's moving at relativistic speed, at near light speed in your direction, appears bright, and material that's moving away from you is dark. With those two effects, you can draw pictures that look like this, as we did 10 years ago. That shows gravity's shadow in the center. It shows a bright side associated with the material that's moving towards us. And it shows a dim penumbra about the entire image caused by emission from material that's moving away from us. Since that time, we've made significant advances in how we compute these sorts of simulations. This is the result of something we call a general relativistic magnetohydrodynamic simulation, and I'm out of breath. <laughs> this is the result of months of supercomputing time. But all the main features are there, the shadow, the bright side, the diffuse penumbra. Of course, we didn't just do it once. We did it hundreds of times. And we produced the largest library of these sorts of simulations in the history of astronomy. We've mapped out not just the two pieces of physics that I described, but also a large subset of physics element, physical elements in these models that we don't properly know the answers to, questions that, in fact, EHT is going to be instrumental in answering. Having this large library uh, at the ready meant that we could quantitatively ask the question, does what we see look like what we had? Does the stories that we've been telling our graduate students for the past 40 years about how those ever-important jets form hold any water? And the answer is, one of these is the data, one of these is a simulation. I'm not going to tell you which one. Yes. In fact, the bedtime stories we tell our graduate students have now been founded in the firmament of empirical observation. The second thing we can do with this library of images is begin to measure something about the gravity of that black hole. I said lensing was one of the primary effects in setting that image. It sets the, si uh, the size of that shadow, and the size of that shadow depends solely on gravity. And so by measuring the size of the shadow, we learn about the black hole at the center, and we learn about how gravity operates near black holes. We didn't do it with a ruler. <laughs> we had three different uh, methods that we applied on four different days, and all of them found uh, the same answer. It's one of my favorite plots in science. It's incredibly boring. A lot of points all line up. The answer was M87 has to harbor a black hole that's six and a half billion times as massive as the sun. Billion with a B. That's interesting. This is the first time so much mass has been confined to such small a region. It is the first time that the dynamics of light have been used to measure the mass of a black hole. But it is not the first time there has been an estimate of the mass of M87. 
There are preceding measurements based on the dynamics of stars far away. Stars that are moving fast indicate massive objects. Stars moving slow indicate low-mass objects. It found the same answer. And that's really interesting, because these stellar measurements are out at 60 light-years, whereas our measurement is in 40 light-hours, 100,000 times closer in. What stitches these two regions together is the theory of gravity. If Einstein's theory of gravity were wrong, there's no reason why these numbers should be the same. And so this is a stunning demonstration of the consistency of Einstein's theory, consistency of general relativity from interstellar distances all the way down continuously to the event horizon of a black hole. M87 is not alone. It's the first thing we've produced an image of, but it is the exemplar of a class of objects. Here's a picture of the sky in the gamma rays, and everything with a little white circle around it is an object like M87. Not all of them as close, not all of them as bright, not all of them as massive, but a sibling. And in this picture, they're undercounted by at least 20,000 because of the way they're selected. This is a very special group. So there's actually 20,000 more on the sky. And what we learn about M87, we can infer about all of these and their impacts in their neighborhoods. So on April 10th, I had the incredible privilege, it's one of the greatest honors of my, my life and certainly my professional career, to stand with a number of my colleagues and represent the more than 200 members of the collaboration that made all of this possible. And I think that many of us understood that this picture might have an impact. For me, like for many, seeing is believing. And so seeing a picture like this had a profound impact. I think few of us could have predicted the magnitude of the impact that this picture had. The European Southern Observatory estimates that more than four and a half billion people have seen this picture. Even if that's wrong by factors of two, that's enormous. This is clearly the most important thing that I've ever done. This is no longer a science story, not any longer a part of my research, but it's part of the human story. It's part of your story. It's part of a new period in which we can study these incredible objects. But it is just the beginning. This is just the first crack in the opening of this window in a time scale measured in years, not decades. We will look at other objects. We will look in other colors, at other frequencies. We will see polarization and these images will move. And so this still remains an effort of exploration. And we don't really know what we're going to find as we drill down and sharpen this picture. All I know is that the age of the black hole has now begun. Thank you. Bravo, Avery, for a titanic achievement, really exceptional. Thank you. Um, in the movies, in sci-fi, the black hole is depicted as the thing in which nothing survives. Do you believe that? 
Normally, normally we think of the black hole as being defined by its event horizon. It's a perfect prison, the ultimate trap, and everything ends up down at the bottom of the singularity. But part of being the perfect prison, it is that undiscovered country from which nobody has returned. So I don't know what's inside. <laughs> we don't know what's inside. Thank you again, Amy. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.